How's everybody doing today? Good, good morning. Just uh, for those of you online who uh, they only know me as the guy who does the welcome and the outro for the things, uh, David Kibler did not grow a beard and gain weight and become stunningly good looking. Um, he, uh, he's actually on vacation right now. He is uh, with his family. They took a couple weeks of well-deserved vacation time, but I know Dave and I know he's watching right now. And uh, he's probably chatting away on the uh, chat room as we speak. And so, Dave, can't wait for you to get back, man. And uh, next week, they'll get to hear a good sermon again. But for today, for today, I'm really excited. Um, I want to clear one thing up, though, before I, before I go any further. I've had several people come up to myself, and I think Rob's had a couple of people ask him, why haven't we been preaching since the COVID thing happened? And it's really simple. Rob and I got together, and we decided we shouldn't. Uh, when COVID hit, we decided it's best that the church's leader, our senior minister, needed to be the one preaching. And so we went to Dave, unbeknownst to him, and we told him that we would rather he just do the preaching during this time. And as a result, Dave has probably preached the best sermons he has preached in the 12 years that Catalyst has been in existence. And so there's no pressure at all today to, to do well. So, um, <laughs> but uh, it's... It has been awesome just to see Dave's leadership through this, and so we're excited for Dave to get back, um, but today we're starting a brand new series, and the series is entitled Grace Marriage, and it's, it's something that really matters to me. See, both sets of my grandparents lived out their marriage vows. My parents lived out their marriage vows. My wife's parents lived out their vows, and so marriage really matters, and this new series is all about how grace impacts marriage, so much so that our main thing today is marriage begins with grace. Before we get started, though, let's pray. Let's ask God to come in here and kind of lead us through this today as we get into his word. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you so much for Jesus. Um, we do put our trust in you alone. God, here's our hearts. We love you. And today we want to learn how to better love our spouse and our future spouses. God, we want to learn how to, to make marriage something that honors you. And so as we continue through this whole series, God, we pray that we can honor you through it. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So uh, let me just set the scene for what's going to be happening over the next several weeks. Um, here's a rundown of the sermons that are coming up as we go through this series. Uh, next week, we're actually going to be talking about how marriage is God's territory. Uh, it's not the responsibility or defined by a local, state, or national government, and it is not defined by popular opinion. Marriage is God's territory. He's the one that created. He gets to define what it is. The week after that, uh, we'll be talking about sleeping with the enemy, and basically what happens when your marriage starts to fall apart and you don't even like each other anymore, and how do you get out of that pit? The following week is grace parenting, and as parents, you're a team. So how, as parents, can you show grace to your children as you, as you raise them? The week after that is the seven benefits of marriage. And in a world where marriage really isn't important anymore, where marriage just really isn't something people think has any value, how do we as the church show the value and need for strong marriage. Our youth minister, Rob, then will be ending the series with a, with a sermon entitled, Better Together. 
And no, it's not about COVID. Just so you know. Better together. What happens when couples in the church begin to do ministry together? How much more powerful can the church be as a force for Christ when married couples are doing ministry together? And so we're really excited about this series and what's going on uh, with it. But today, I get to focus on grace. And I want to say something to you single people, whether you're online or you're here in the room right now, uh, this, this series is for you too. This is not just for married people. Uh, there's a lot of this that can carry into friendships, relationships, and future marriages for you. So be sure to stick around and don't tune out while we're doing this because there's a lot we can all gather from this. Um, so today, we're going to talk about grace, but I want to tell you a story. See, in the early 1930s, there was a young man named John Fridley who met a beautiful young lady named Eleanor Wickline. Eleanor was the teacher at a local schoolhouse, and by schoolhouse, I literally mean it was a one-room schoolhouse in the 1930s. It was in the mountains of Virginia. And as was the custom of that time, Eleanor would be boarded up in the homes of the different families of the children who attended the school. This was actually part of their pay, and the two met while Eleanor was being boarded at the Fridley home. She was actually teaching John's two younger sisters. John himself had only finished the seventh grade before dropping out and going on into the workforce. But the two fell in love, and shortly after, they were married. Both loved the Lord, and they were committed to God. They rented a house in town after they got married, and John began working at the local paper mill. It was basically a storybook beginning. Two people meet, they fall in love, and they start their lives together. Well, shortly after this, they decide that they're going to start having children, and they have children, and they decide to build a farm out in the country by 200 acres of farmland. They have cows and hogs. They have fruit trees and wheat. Uh, and by working their own land, they basically became self-sustainable. They, uh, they didn't need to go to the grocery store but once a month because they had their own milk and pork and beef and vegetables and venison. And they even made their own bread. They were completely self-sustained in their farm. And they continued to have children. In total, they had 10 of them. Now, for most of us today, that would be a complete nightmare. But when you own a 200-acre farm, that's good thinking. <laughs> they had 10 kids. One of them, unfortunately, was born stillborn. And another one was born with a heart defect that at the time was called uh, blue baby syndrome. Today, we call that cyanotic heart disease. It's a, uh, it's a congenital heart condition where the blood isn't getting enough oxygen. So you add that to shift work at the paper mill, including some overtime, uh, working the fields, raising children, and running your child to the doctors and to surgeries more often than any child should have to do, and you can easily find yourself pretty stressed out. Well, in the 1940s and 50s, stress wasn't as well known as, as it is today. See, uh, conditions like bipolar depression, that wasn't as commonly known as it is now. And as time continued, John began to feel the weight of the stress on his life and all these things that were pushing for his time. And he began to struggle with a short fuse and everything could set him off. If you don't listen, you set him off. If, if you disagree, he'd lose it. 
And everything finally came to a head when John began to finally start abusing Eleanor physically. What was once a storybook beginning had now become a nightmare. Truth be told, marriage is not an easy thing, right? And I'm praying none of you are in that kind of a situation, but marriage is a very difficult thing. There are days when you feel like it's the honeymoon all over again, and there are days when you aren't sure you've chosen a good path for your adult life. Um, there are days when you guys are best friends. You, your husband, husband and wife, you're, you're best friends, and there are other days when you wake up and you look at the person laying next to you in bed, and you don't know who the heck that person is. But one thing is for sure. Marriage is a commitment. It's a covenant. It's a pact. You've made the statement, till death do us part. But you may be saying, but John, does it really have to be till death do us part? Because that smelly guy with bad style over there thinks that socks look good in sandals. And, and that lady over there, she looks like something out of a sci-fi movie with that green paint she puts all over her face before she goes to bed at night. Here's the thing. Men and women are different. We all need grace. And we need different kinds of grace. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. The Apostle Paul knew this when he was writing Ephesians chapter 5. And if you're online right now, uh, you should have a link right there on the page where you can click on the sermon notes and just follow along with us. And for those of us who are here today, if you want to follow along with the notes, you can look on the back of your bulletin. Or you can open up the Bible app, click on the More tab on the bottom right-hand corner, go to Events, and click on Catalyst. And that'll help you to be able to follow along and read through the Scriptures with us. Today we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. And here we read, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present herself to him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. One thing we quickly learn from this passage is that marriage, the marriage relationship mirrors the relationship of Christ to the church. See, I think God is the ultimate screenwriter when it comes to foreshadowing. One of the things I love when you're watching a movie is at the end when you find out who the big bad guy was and you realize that all through the movie there were these foreshadowing things that happened that if you'd have really been paying attention, you would have picked up on it. You would have realized that he or she or whoever this bad person is, you knew by the end that was going to be the bad guy because of these little things that were happening. And, and God is so good at that. He's so good at that. I mean, you think about it. At least two times in the Old Testament... Two times, God talks about 
offers salvation through water. First, it was when Noah and his family were saved through the washing of the earth on the great flood. And the second time was when God saved the Israelites from slavery by allowing them to walk through the Red Sea unscathed and onto the promised land. When Christ came and said to be baptized, everyone got it because it made sense. They had seen the foreshadowing, and it just made sense. And when God created Adam and Eve, he knew Christ was going to have to come. He already knew what Christ was going to have to do one day, and he set up the establishment of marriage. So for millennia, all of the earth understood that the groom would come for the bride, that he would care for her, she would respect him, and they would live out their days together. So when Christ, or when the church is called the bride of Christ, that should make total sense. Christ came for his church. He cared and cares for her. And one day we're going to spend eternity together. God had foreshadowed this thing from the beginning. That's why Paul takes the time to compare the relationship of the husband and the wife with Christ and the church. And when I read this, I pick up four things that I believe are some major takeaways from this package, or from this passage. Four things that I think can actually redefine a marriage for the better. The very first thing is without mutual submission, there's toxic expectation. Without mutual submission, there's toxic expectation. See, this can go in so many ways. So many ways. If you aren't willing to submit to your spouse you create this expectation of servitude. Suddenly, you expect all of your needs met, but you feel no desire to give of yourself. You take, and you take, and you take, and you're not satisfied until you have your needs met. See, this is toxic because your spouse suddenly now becomes your caregiver. You're not equal partners. This person has to constantly provide for you, and it stunts your maturity as an adult, and it allows you to be completely selfish. Basically, in layman's terms, you become that 35-year-old guy that lives in his parents' basement so he doesn't have to pay any bills, play video games all day, and get a bunch of free food. That's basically what you become when you become this person who refuses to submit. And instead of being someone who can submit, you become the very opposite of that and incapable of doing that very thing. On the flip side, if you aren't being submitted to, you find yourself realizing that you aren't good enough. At least, that's what you begin to think. That no matter what you do, you can't fulfill the needs of your spouse. And this is toxic because you get worn down, you get beat down, you get beat up. And you become more and more anxious. You feel like somewhere along the way, you did something to mess things up. Your self-esteem is shot, and you feel more like a housemaid or a butler than you do a spouse. In verse 21, Paul simply says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, submission to your spouse isn't simply about your spouse or for your spouse. It's showing loyalty and respect for the Son of God. By not submitting, you're doing the opposite. You're disregarding how Christ wants marriage to look and telling him that your way is better. And just so you know, 
your way's not better. Okay? It's really not. He has way more knowledge in marriage than you do, or I do. It kind of reminds me of my two-year-old son, Jack, who gets in an argument with me when I try and tell him that my mother is my mommy. And he looks at me and says, no, she's Grammy. He has limited knowledge, and because of his limited knowledge, he likes to think that he knows best for, for what's truth, and he will fight it. He will furl his nose. He will raise his voice. He will lift his shoulders and swear that I am wrong, but the truth is, I'm right. And when it comes to submission, God is right. We both need to submit to one another. Submission is necessary from both spouses, not just one. The next thing I picked up from this passage is that without mutual respect, there will always be unrest. When you don't respect the person you are with, you're never comfortable with them. You, uh, you don't respect that person. You don't trust them. You don't have a high opinion of them. And you typically don't want to be around them. You tend to lash out, say hurtful things, and you do things and spend money without communicating with each other. As the abuse continued with John and Eleanor, it became very clear that he was to be respected. End of story. He was the head of the house, and, and he was not to be challenged. His children actually grew up loving and living in fear of him all at the same time. His daughters would cry at night as they listened to their father hitting their mother, just praying that they weren't next. This isn't the kind of respect that Paul is talking about. The funny thing about, about res respecting somebody or not respecting somebody is that when you don't respect somebody, you still expect them to respect you. See, he, we feel like we have a high moral ground or some kind of leg up on the other person that defines us as a better human being. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is get on social media all you have to do is, is start reading through articles. It's loaded with these, read this article, and if you don't agree with me, you're not a good person. Has anybody read those articles before? I know you have. Nobody's raising their hands. You're probably the people posting them. Um, <laughs> but it seems like there's this, this, our culture has created this cancel culture of if you don't agree with me, I cancel you out. If you don't agree with me, I need to silence you. Some would call this a God complex. Others would, would call it false moral high ground. And Star, Star Wars would call it uh, the way of the Sith. Um, if you watch Star Wars, you get that. Um, living in marriage that lacks in respect rarely ends well. But almost always comes to an end. Friendships, work relationships, none of them can survive None of them can survive when there is a lack of respect. When we don't respect, we find ourselves avoiding communication and become very spatially aware of the person we are with because we don't want to be around them. There's a sense of discomfort that, that you can cut with a knife and you can't hide it. But on the flip side, marriages that are oozing with respect a marriage that oozes with respect is one of complete trust. You can see in it how comfortable they are 
around each other. They always expect the best out of each other. Because when you don't respect somebody, you always expect the worst. But they always expect the best. And, and you can find there's always this mutual respect in, in these couples that hold nothing back. Couples with mutual respect, they don't hold anything back. Um, but they do so in love. Because they want to see the best version of the other person that they possibly can. They want to hear what the other has to say because it has infinite importance to them. They hang on each other's words. And they back each other's play. Respect allows each spouse the opportunity to be themselves. Now, even though Eleanor was going through such a difficult time in her marriage, and she never spoke ill about John. Even though he was doing all these awful things, she never spoke ill about him. Not to her children, not to other family members, and not to her friends. In spite of everything that was going on, she respected him as her husband. And she showed that respect in all that she did. She had every right to leave his side, to run away and never look back. No one would have thought less of her if she had, but she continued in the marriage, and she genuinely loved John. Which takes us to this next point that I got from Paul, which is without mutual love, one will always have the most power. Now, I've seen it so many times in my life, and you probably have too. There's a young man or a young woman, and they finally start dating the man or woman of their dreams, the person they've wanted to date their whole lives. They start dating, and that person would step in front of a freight train for the love of their lives. But everyone else can see that their boyfriend or girlfriend probably won't do the same thing for them. The one person with all the love is investing everything they can in the relationship, and the other one's just kind of there. We start to look on that person who's loving the most with pity. We see them as kind of pitiful. And we see the person who loves the least as a villain. Unfortunately, this is all too common in marriage. This is all too common. One spouse loves intentionally and deeply while the other is comfortable in their situation. This can cause one spouse to put in all the emotional work while the other one does whatever they want without a care in the world. No marriage is more unbalanced than the one that has unequal love. One's always going to get their way while the other just wants approval. One will say and do whatever they want while the other just walks on eggshells. This is not what God wants in marriage. In verses 25 through 30, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. 
Now, I will go on to say here, and I will go as far to say that this isn't just for the men in the room. If we want to see powerful marriages, we need to see powerful love building those powerful marriages. The needs of the other need to outweigh my needs. When the spouse hurts, I hurt. And parents, I really, 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 are you understanding where I'm coming from right now? I want you to get this. Parents, that love for your spouse needs to be greater than the love for your children. It has to be. It has to be. Because there will come a day when your children will leave and you'll be sitting across the table from someone. If you don't love them enough, they will not be able to fill that void that has been left. They will not be able to to love the way they need to. And I'm going to tell you something. Your parents need, parents, your kids need, and I mean they need to see you love each other like that because when parents love each other in that way, kids realize I can't pit mom and dad against each other. I can't use the one parent to get what I want when the other one says no because they realize really quick mom and dad are a team and they're not gonna work against each other. Not only that, but children will typically model their parents' behavior in their own marriages. And if we can become families where couples love each other that much, we have a really good chance of birthing new families that love the same way. And that's what this world needs. Now, what we've learned so far is we've learned that Without mutual submission, there's toxic expectation. Without mutual respect, there will always be unrest. And without mutual love, one will always have the most power. So this brings us to the fourth point, and this is the most important thing that I've found reading this passage, and that's this. Without grace, submission, respect, and love don't exist. Let me repeat that one more time. Without grace, submission, respect, and love do not exist. Without grace, you become bitter. Without grace, you will never trust. Without grace, your marriage will be nothing more than a power struggle. Without grace, quite simply, your marriage will probably end. That's pretty heavy, huh? You're probably thinking, John, can we like lighten this up a little bit? (laughs) You're kind of beating us down right now. Um, Why are you making me feel like a terrible person right now? But that's the opposite of what I want. See, guys, you have to understand. We are all, and I mean we are all flawed. We are physically flawed. We are emotionally flawed. We are spiritually flawed. None of us are perfect, and that's okay. But we all need grace. When we hurt each other, and we all do, We need grace. And when we make a mistake, which we all do, unless you're Jerry Phelps, we need grace. When our week has been awful and we say or do things that are completely out of character, grace is necessary. And if you genuinely cannot show grace in your marriage, good luck making it work. 
Grace is the single most necessary thing you can have in a marriage. And if we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, Paul talks about grace. And he says, And God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God and not by works, so that no one can boast. Again, in chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Grace is the key theme in our salvation, and it needs to be the key in our marriages. Without it, we're walking around on eggshells. Uh, We aren't able to forgive each other when invariably we're human, holding grudges or consistently bringing up that one thing that was done to you by your spouse years ago enslaves not only your spouse, but it holds you slave as well. You're chained to it. You're placed in a cell, and you're left to suffer the sentence that you've given to your marriage. Grace is the key that unlocks the chains and unlocks the cell and allows you to move past something that you will never, ever be able to change because so many times, so many times, someone will say, you can't change the past. You can't change what you did. And that's used in an attempt to hold someone to an eternal life of saying, I'm sorry, or never really knowing whether they're ever forgiven. But grace, it says, you can't change the past. You can't change what you did. And it allows us to stay. It allows that that sin, that thing that happened to stay in the past, moving on from it and forgiving That's submission, that's respect, that's love. If there's no grace, those things cannot and will not exist. When a marriage thinks grace first, the fruit of the Spirit follows. Allowing God to move in that marriage in a mighty, mighty way. Never holding on to what was done in the past, but looking towards what is ahead. As the years went on, and we entered the 1970s, John and Eleanor are starting to get older. And they decide that farm life is a little too difficult at this point. So they move into town. Stress levels are now lower. John isn't lashing out nearly as much as he used to. And the last of their children is getting ready to finish high school. Somehow, through all of the storms of their marriage, they were still together. Eleanor at John's side. Grandchildren are now in the mix, and John is starting to soften up. For the first time, he is outwardly showing love by hugging his children and his grandchildren, and he's smiling a lot more. And life is finally starting to feel more peaceful. The 1980s come in, and there are more grandchildren. Yearly reunions are packed with family members, and and it seems as if life can't be any better. But then the unthinkable happens. After having some tests run, it's discovered that Eleanor has stomach cancer. Now, her health takes an immediate downturn, and suddenly, their marriage hits a crossroads. 
after years of abuse and anger, would John throw his hands up and just say he's finished? Would he be angered at his wife for doing this to him? How would John react when his wife couldn't do her job anymore? Who's going to do the dishes, cook the food, do the laundry, clean the house? It had been 50 years since John had had to think of any of this stuff. But something amazing happened. See, after after years of grace from his wife, a switch flipped in his brain. Without batting an eye, John started cooking the meals. He started cleaning the house. He started doing the laundry. And John never left his wife's side. He was at her every beck and call. His life ceased to be about his needs, and he became the man that Eleanor had always dreamed he would be. See, those days and nights when she was sick, he was the one that was cleaning up the mess. He allowed her to get the sleep she needed. He never asked her to do anything. It was not about him anymore. It was always about her. He desperately loved his wife. And after three years of battling cancer, Eleanor left this world to be with Christ. And John stayed by her side to the end. Something I didn't tell you early on in the story is that when they met, Eleanor was 26 years old. And in the 1930s, if you were 26 and unmarried, it was pretty much a given you weren't getting married. She was considered an old maid at that point. So had she left John, had she decided that she couldn't do this anymore and left, there's a good chance she'd have never been married. She may have never married, and there's a good chance her last days would have been alone. Instead, she showed grace. Even when everyone around her would have probably hit the road, she chose forgiveness. And that forgiveness transformed her husband and their marriage. Their marriage started well. It was a major struggle in the middle, but it ended with grace. And Eleanor got to spend her last days with the man that I was named after. See, John and Eleanor Fridley were my grandparents. They're my mother's parents. It wasn't until I was in my 30s when I even knew any of this about my grandfather. Um, The grandfather I knew, we called him Granddaddy Fridley, He was this kind old man. He was this little short skinny dude. All we knew was he was a guy that loved us, loved his children, and he desperately loved his wife. I remember being in complete shock when I found out that he had done these awful, terrible things because I didn't know that man. I remember him yelling at me one time because I knocked down the neighbor's motorcycle, but I think half this room would have yelled at me for that. But I deserved it. Other than that, he was always so gentle and kind. So you see, guys, that's what grace does in a marriage. That's what grace can do. The most horrible of people can be transformed. The monster can become a teddy bear if you love your spouse. If you love your spouse and they're worth fighting for, the best thing you can do is show grace. You can hold on to past sins as long as you want, but until you let go, there will be a harness around your neck directing your every thought and action, and it's not until grace steps in 
It's not until grace steps in that you genuinely reap the benefits of marriage. My grandfather was truly blessed to have married my grandmother. Maybe more than he ever understood. To this day, she is the most godly woman I've ever known in my entire life. She knew what God could do in her husband's life, and she refused to see him any other way. Is that you and your marriage? Are you seeing your spouse through God's eyes, or are you only seeing red? Is grace your first reaction, or is it your last option? See, if marriage is to mirror the relationship of Christ to the church, then we need to realize that when we didn't deserve it, Christ forgave us. So now it's our turn to do the same because marriage begins with grace. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we just thank you so much for Jesus. God, this sermon means nothing if it wasn't for Christ and the church. This means nothing if you hadn't sent him to this earth to show us what grace really is because God, your grace is everything to us. And so God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending Jesus to be that example of grace and we pray, God, that the marriages represented in this room today are marriages that are examples of grace. God, we genuinely love you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you for the people you've put in our lives to spend the rest of our lives with. And we pray that we can honor you in our marriages, our future marriages, our dating relationships, our friendships. God, you are so good. We love you. And we pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.